Hi folks, welcome to Epochs, where I'm joined by Bo, and we are going to be talking about the tumultuous times of Henry III. Now, I've got to be honest, I actually don't know much about Henry III. I know a lot about the time period in which he lived, um, but he isn't, who doesn't seem that interesting. And he seems to be bookended by two more interesting kings. Yeah, you can absolutely be forgiven for knowing less about him than a lot of the others, and for exactly that reason. All historians, even Shakespeare, noted that John is really interesting for being a baddie, yeah. if you like. And his son, who is Edward I, Edward Longshanks, yeah. who also has a long 30-plus long year-long reign and lots and lots of adventures mm. and daring do. And then Henry III, as you say, bookend, bookended by them, it pales in comparison. Right. He's outshone by their glare. Mm. Very much so, yeah. Um, so he, because he ruled for a long time, he became king at nine when his father John died of dysentery unexpectedly. Hmm. So he was a boy king, ruled in his minority, uh, and ruled for sort of 55, 56 odd years, so a long, long reign. But he wasn't a martial king. He didn't have a great, a, a, a massive personality. Hmm. In fact, he was quite pious. He's known as one of the most pious kings. Hmm. The, his sort of, I suppose you could say, his greatest achievement was rebuilding Westminster Abbey. <laughs> so that gives you a sort of a measure of the man. He's more interested in spending his treasure on abbeys than on fighting in France. There's definitely something to be said for it. Mm. And I imagine that the average person is like, oh, thank God, there's 50 years of peace. Well, no, well, there, there was no peace. There wasn't yeah. massive chevrolet yeah. chase through France, but it was a really, yeah. really tumultuous time. Mm. So this episode, we are going to talk obviously, obviously all about Henry III, Henry of Winchester, he was called. Uh, but the times are very, very uh, turbulent. Um, very turbulent. Uh, it's the 13th century. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, let's just get straight into it. Okay. Got a whole bunch of quotes from Churchill, as usual. Um, I do think Churchill, from Richard and John through to Edward III, I would say, it's probably the best bit, mm. for me, of the history of the English-speaking peoples. So I shall continue quoting from Churchill for the next couple anyway. Uh, here's a general quote. He said, It was a reign of turmoil and distress. And yet the forces of progress moved doggedly forward. Red hot iron was smitten on the anvil. This is a metaphor. Red hot iron was smitten on the anvil and the hammer blows forged a metal more tense than had yet been seen. In this period, the common people with their Anglo-Saxon tradition of ancient rites and law running back to remote antiquity lay suffering under the armoured feet of the nobility and of the royal mercenaries, reinforced in the main by the power of the church. But the people's masters were dis, uh, disunited. Not only did their jealousies and ambitions and their taste for war keep them at variance, but several, several rending fissures were opening among them. They were divided into parties. They were, they were cross-cut obliquely by a strong nationalism. It is an age of impulse and experiment, not controlled by any general political theory. So I think that one of the takeaway things is that um, there's a a couple of big revolts happen during Henry's reign. Oh, is this the Peasants' Revolt? Uh, no, uh, no, that's later, that's, that's later. Yeah. Uh, of course, he starts his reign in the middle of John's sort of civil war. Hmm. Then there's a much, much bigger baronial revolt in, in the sort of middle or towards the end of his reign, and that's the one with Simon de Montfort. Right. So the story of Henry III 
uh, the takeaway thing is that it's wrapped up in the story of Simon de Montfort and, uh, and the Second Baron's Revolt. Hmm. Um, so that's, they're the main things. But lots of other themes are worthy of note. His, his sort of relationship with the church, the laws, um, all sorts of things. Um, but we'll, we'll get into it. So <clears throat> if we pick up from when John died. Yep. Churchill said, King John died in his toils, but he died at bay. In other words, he was still in the Civil War, but not, you know, not being chased or anything. I mean, he was winning the Civil War. Right, he, he looked like he was starting to yeah. win, yeah. <coughs> Although Louis the Lion was mm. holding London, so it yeah. wasn't, nothing was, it was far from over. It wasn't over, but yeah. he was getting the upper hand. So you can imagine, can't you, that um, the party around the boy, Henry III, um, led at least in part by William the Marshal, mm. you can imagine when John dies, they're like, oh, that's inconvenient, to say the least, <laughs> right? We're in the middle of something here. Yeah. Um, you know, the chips have been thrown high. Yeah. We, uh, nothing is inevitable here. Um, we know there is the continuation of the Plantagenet line, but that no, nothing like that would, could be taken for granted. Mm. Um, Churchill said, the misgovernment of his reign, John, John's reign, um, had brought against him what seemed to be an overwhelming combination. He was at war with the English barons who had forced him to grant the charter. They had invited Louis, son of the implacable Philip, King of France, into the country to be their liege lord. And with him came foreign troops and hardy adventurers. The insurgent barons north of the Humber had the support of Alexander, King of the Scots. In the west, the rebellion was sustained by Llewellyn, the powerful prince of North Wales. The towns were mainly against the king. London was vehemently hostile. The kinkports were in enemy hands. Winchester, Worcester and Carlisle, separated by the great distances of those times, were united in opposition to the crown. So although John had been going round <clears throat> being successful in various sieges hmm. and sort of putting down whoever he sort of <clears throat> came across, hmm. in general, uh, he was still sort of up against it, if you yeah. like. Um, Churchill says, on the other hand, the recreant king had sacrificed the stat status of the realm to purchase the unswerving aid of the papacy, a strong body of mercenaries, uh, the only regular troops in the kingdom, were in John's pay. Some of the greatest warrior nobles, the venerable William the Marshal and the famous romantic Ranulph, Earl of Chester, with a strong following of the aristocracy, adhered to his cause. So even though a lot of the country's against him, he's got a few powerful, mm. powerful, strong people in, on his side. Well, he's got the only professional body of troops, mm. which counts for a lot. Yeah, yeah. Even Louis' army are sort of more mercenaries than mm. they are. Yeah, sort of regular troops. Um, the mass of the people, bewildered by this new quarrel of their masters, on the whole inclined to the king against the barons, and certainly against the invading foreigners. Their part was only to suffer at the hands of both sides. Thus the forces were evenly balanced. Everything threatened a long stubborn civil war and a return to the anarchy of Stephen and Maud. John himself, after a lifetime of subtleties and double dealing, of illegal devices and sharp unexpected twists of religious policy showed himself possessed in the last months of his life of a warlike energy and resource which astonished friend and foe. It was at this moment that he died of dysentery, aggravated by fatigue and too much food and drink. So that's where the story 
of Henry III kicks off. Now, I always feel sorry for these boy kings. Can't be easy. Right. Um, because apart from anything else, it's like perhaps um, being uh, an, an heir or an heiress as a child today. Mm. Now, imagine being a small child and your parents die and you're left hundreds of millions or something or a billion. And you're going to grow up with a warped view. You're not going to be a well-balanced person, almost certainly, are you? Yep. It'd be, it'd be very difficult, if not impossible, to sort of be normal. Hmm. Imagine being nine years old and being told you're king and there's this whole party of, 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 of barons, of warriors, and, and you're like dealing with the, the Pope and stuff. Um, I can't, really. Right, yeah, I, can't, can't, I can't, can't even can't imagine, imagine how it. difficult that is. I mean, I don't know what the perspective of a nine-year-old like that is. Cause, I mean, my, my son's nearly nine and I wouldn't wish something like that upon him. Mm. Yeah, even if you have a sort of a small amount of wealth or power, mm. it's the classic trope, isn't it, that child actors grow up to be all kinds of messed up. Yeah. And that's just a little, that's like you've been on TV a bit. I think that and might be screws, the consequence of Hollywood, though. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Hollywood. Yeah, well, there's that as well. <laughs> as, yeah. as much as it is like the fame. And don't go wrong, I'm sure that doesn't help. But, um, but yeah, the, I think the main issue would be who to trust. Like, you don't know anything. Mm. You're very ignorant of the world. And everyone around you is pretending to be your friend. Mm. Mm. So, uh, as I said there, there's also, there's basically a massive power struggle, a, a, a civil war in all but name, really, mm. or a type of civil war going on, something approaching an anarchy. And uh, there's sort of a royalist party and a, a, a rebel party. And... Um, so, with William the Marshal effectively at the head of the Royalist Party, mm. they, they haven't got London. Louis the Lion of France is in London. So, they crown him somewhere else. Was it, I, can't, I don't know if it was Winchester, it says in one of the quotes later, but they get him crowned. Um, and it should really be in Westminster Abbey, because there is a Westminster Abbey, an older version of it before mm. this. Henry III goes on to rebuild it, as I said. Um, but it's the, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, that stand by him, stand by Henry III, and he sort of never forgot that. Uh, and he, he sort of well, became, grew up to be very, very pious and, you know, completely Catholic. We're still long before the Reformation, aren't we? We're long before even Wycliffe. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, it's either Rome or nothing yeah. sort of thing. And, yeah, he, you know... Sometimes in, in people's minds, religion just clicks and it becomes a massive part of their, their, person, their whole personality, their whole worldview. Because, of course, his father, John, was fairly irreligious or seemed to use... Hardly a good Christian. He seemed to use religion as just a, a, one more tool in his toolbox of mm. politics rather than genuinely caring about his soul mm. and things. So... Well, I, what I find with these sorts of people, and I think this is kind of reflected in Alfred the Great as well, when there are tremendous upheavals and huge amounts of political turmoil, and you are looking for something that you can claim is a singular unvarnished good, there's no question as to whether I should do what is written in the Bible and follow Jesus's word and things like this. And this, I think, acts as a kind of point on a compass for these people through these difficult times. 
For sure. Sure, there's solace in that, yeah. isn't that? It, that? You've got confirmation from sort of the rest of the world, from most of society saying, this is morally correct. Yeah, the, well, that's the point, isn't it? It's, sol- it's, it's not just solace, it's moral clarity. Right. Because a lot yeah. of the time you can have lots of different people around you with lots of different competing moral claims, and you don't know. You know, and there's chaos everywhere. There's a, a, a perennial lack of information about almost everything that happens as well. Like, we're, we're very spoiled in the modern era with the amount of information we can get very, very quickly. Mm, like, mm. a lot, one of the things that people don't realise about, and it, literally going back to, like, before the radio, so, you know, up until, like, the Victorian era, is there was just ignorance. And they knew they didn't know what was happening in India until three months later a letter arrived. Mm. Tell them, you know, and things like this, you know, that sort of thing. And this is just a perennial problem in history, is intelligence. And so if you've got chaos going on, it becomes... And you've got all these different claims being made against you. It's just easy to say, well, look, I'm I'm going to follow what Jesus said because that is obviously the correct thing and everyone agrees. There's mm. no one who's going to say, well, no, that's not right. Mm. You know, ever, And so I, th- I think it's a kind of <clears throat> security. Certainly in the first half of the 13th century... Yeah. There's no one saying, actually, <laughs> the Pope is completely wrong. There's no Richard Dawkins uh, at this time. Yeah. Or yeah. actually, maybe we could say this now. I was going to leave it for a bit later, but let's quickly discuss it now. Yeah. The, the Albigenses. We can. <clears throat> so yeah. I mentioned this before even Wycliffe, who was a very, very early precursor to um, uh, uh, the, the Protestants. Yeah. One of the first people to say, uh, there's nothing in the Bible here about about yeah. popes and saints and revering Mary and um, and nothing in the Bible about relics, for example. Nothing in the Bible about a Pontifex Maximus. Uh, yeah. A pagan high priest of Rome. Or that you can literally pay money to have people yeah. pray on your behalf and hmm. things like this. Yeah. Um, Intercession with saints? What are you talking about? None of this makes any sense. A lot of the stuff that uh, Luther, Martin Luther, and the Protestants hmm. in the in the 16th century had a problem with, um, people were still uh, a couple of hundred years earlier uh, making the point. Yeah, it's not a new point. It's just Martin Luther <coughs> writes down the 95 Theses and nails it to the door and says, "Look, this is BS." And if you are a biblical literalist and a scriptural, strictly scripturalist, then yeah, you can't really argue the point, actually. Um, these are all traditions that grew up out of the Roman pagan religion uh, when it Christianized. Yeah, there's all sorts of inconsistencies between the Gospels, uh, well, and the Old Testament, and the way the Catholic Church conducted itself in the Middle Ages. And also the general um, thesis of Jesus. Uh, one of the, so if we're, very briefly on the Albigensian Crusade and the Cathars, um, the Cathars had a very strong argument because they called themselves the good Christians and they would walk barefoot around the land in black robes and they would set up little shops in various um, towns where a few of them would just spin wool or do whatever it was to make a living. And they would live as Jesus lived, as in poor, among the poor, helping the poor. Uh, they would take vows of celibacy when they reached sort of middle age. And they would um, do good works in exactly the name, uh, in exactly the way they believed Jesus was represented to do in the Bible. Uh, this is very persuasive. 
when the when the other side of the argument is a massive gilded papal retinue of a cardinal or something like that who's on horseback who has giant landed estates who himself has thousands of pounds of gold and dozens of armed men and you say well you're not really the christian here are you because if jesus came back who is he going to approve of and of course the argument was with the cathars and not the pope and just to cut it all very short the Pope couldn't win the argument, and so he killed them all. <laughs> and not just the Pope, your local bishop. Yeah, sorry. Your all local the, abbot. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Sorry, I should, know, the, the like, Catholic Church yeah, entirely yeah. couldn't win the argument. And so they called a crusade, and so crusaders would march around Languedoc, uh, besieging castles and massacring heretics. So they would say things like, well, in the Bible, Jesus seems to be extremely interested in sort of helping the poor yeah. and being fair. And there's nothing really about hoarding wealth. In uh, fact, Jesus things. has several um, dictums against hoarding wealth, yeah. actually. Or Give building... away all your wealth and, and follow me if you want to enter the kingdom of God. It's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to go through the eye of the needle, things like this. It's obvious that Jesus isn't pro-luxury. There's nothing here in, in, in Bible about sort of an ecclesiastical tax-collecting structure, <laughs> then we're going to build giant cathedrals and yeah. abbeys and monasteries, and um, there's nothing about that. So yeah. so why am I sort of compelled to give the church money all the time and things? Yeah. Why are yeah. they collecting? <clears throat> so, okay. So, and, and just as a quick thing as well, um, there's strong anti-clerical movements all over Europe at this time because the church has very clearly become a temporal power rather than a spiritual power. I mean, much of the legends of Robin Hood, people think, oh, Robin Hood must have been against the king. No, Robin Hood was a staunch royalist. Robin Hood was against the church. Uh, Robin Hood went around robbing monks all the time <laughs> because the monks would have massive sacks of gold because the monks have been extorting people on religious grounds for their money. Uh, and, it's, and that's just, you know, the, the reflection of it in England. That's the way that the English peasantry remembered it. You know, the Cathars are the sort of, um, uh, what is it, uh, the Occident version of that and you've got various other you know in germany and everywhere else you've got various other anti-clerical movements because the church has become a physical power in the real world that is exercising uh direct political power under people like innocent the third who calls the albigensian crusade um and so it you can see why people would say well this isn't really very christian actually bit later there's uh, in the actual <clears throat> reformation there's all sorts of um, examples like the Anabaptists, yep. very, very hard, like all Puritanism, really. Yeah. Um, and the, the, Calvin, the, lots of people ones... saying, no, we didn't do away with all, mm. with all sort of finery and popery, and we're not mm. going to. So anyway, the and there the... are ones that precede the Cathars as well. It's it's theorised that the the Cathars are kind of the descendants of the Bogomils, who are a tenth century sort of Balkan sect that ends up going across to. Marseille or wherever and then into France um, so it's just like okay well who, who knows but the point is it's been long understood in Christianity that actually the Catholic Church isn't really what Jesus was trying to create mm. Mm. <clears throat> I was reading in, in Gibbon just the other day saying that if um, if Jesus and the Apostles uh, was sort of suddenly he didn't use this turn of phrase but if they were suddenly quantum leaped yeah into the 16th century st peter's they'd be like what religion is this well they'd agree with martin luther probably yeah they, maybe, they, maybe probably, i mean that's yeah. that that's where the strength of protestantism comes from it's look this isn't in the bible this isn't what jesus was saying 
mm. your frauds, basically. And and so you can see why the next 200 years there's massive religious turmoil in Europe because there seems to be a good argument for it. But anyway, so... So uh, the Albigenses or Cathars, yeah. um, sort of one of, the, one of the earliest, not the earliest, but one of the earliest sort of big heretics, because as far as Rome is concerned, that, that you're heretics. Oh, yeah. You deserve death for saying this sort of thing. Yeah. Going around and being meek. And well, <laughs> um, it's, it's challenging the authority yeah. of the church and their doctrine. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. what they... Yeah. And they, they did. Yeah. They burned hundreds of them to death. Hundreds of them. But the thing about the Cathars is that many of them willingly uh, leapt into the flames as martyrs. Mm. Um, so they'd capture them. And when they captured them, the Cathars would throw themselves on the fire. And it's like, okay, mm. these guys are really serious. Because there's the, 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 the earliest church, the mm. church of sort of the third century AD, there's a strong tradition of martyrdom yep. there that um, it's one of the best things you can do. Yep. Which is where a lot of the saints come uh, from. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I've got a couple of quick paragraphs here mm. then from Churchill on that. Churchill wrote, During John's reign, one of the most cruel tragedies of world history had run its course in southern France. In the domains of Raymond VI, Count of Toulouse, there had grown up during several generations a heresy, sombre and austere in theory, but genial in practice. The Albigenses, or Cathars, or, or the Purified, as they were called, dismissed altogether from the human mind the resurrection of the body, purgatory and hell. In their view, life on earth, in the flesh, was the work of Satan. Uh, so, actually, you know, very, very... They were, um, they were Gnostics. Um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. super hard line. Oh, yeah. It is, you know, they are very uh, zealous about their view, yeah. as much as Rome is. Just to expand on what you're saying there, because I don't mm. think what you're saying is exactly correct here. Um, the, the, so this, this is why it's um, theorised that it comes from the Bogomil heresy, which is a, a Gnostic her heresy that believes actually the material world is made by the Demiurge, and the true God of Jesus um, is a kind of over-God, that lies in the transcendent realm beyond the material realm. And so the purpose is to free your soul to arrive at that place mm. through good works. Um, and when he says the, the purified, they, the, the Cathars themselves call themselves the good Christians, um, which is a great name, I think. But the the priests of the Cathars were called the perfect ones, the perfecti. Yeah, because oh, sorry, to describe the, that. Right, 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 yeah. Sorry, okay, I'm, I'm right. preempting him. Oh, okay. So, yeah, exactly what you said. He goes on. The material phase of, of life, yeah. of being alive in the flesh, the material phase would soon pass and the soul, freed from its accursed encumbrance, would be resumed in eternal bliss into the Godhead. The perfect, in quotes, of this cult practiced chastity and abstinence and professed in principle a, a sincere wish for death. But the mass of the population, relieved from the oppression of uh, supernatural terror, developed, we are assured, in the delicious climate of those regions, easy morals and merry character. seems that one of the things of this is that people were happy, were more happy. Yes. Uh, so I don't need to worry about purgatory anymore. The Occident had what... The, the, the Occident is the origin of the troubadour culture, um, where you had wandering bards who'd go around playing songs and people would have feasts and be merry and everyone was happy and they were quite soft and genial and it's the sort of thing that that climate does allow and then you think right okay what were the northern europeans thinking 
And the Northern Europeans were thinking iron and fire and sword and cold. <laughs> and so when the Northern Europeans uh, get wind of this, and the Pope's like, I need you to kill them, uh, the poor um, knights of the Occident were just not up to the task. Um, they, they just weren't as tough. Mm-hmm. The concept of purgatory in the early Middle Ages mm. um, seems to have hung very heavy in people's minds. Because there's yeah. one thing, if you're an out-and-out sinner or you do things sort of overtly wrong, you're going to hell, okay. But it also seems it would be very, very easy to miss heaven and you end up in purgatory yeah. forever, a type of yeah. halfway house. Um, and uh, sometimes through no fault of your own and things. Mm. Um, if people don't bury you in the right way, you can end up in purgatory and stuff. And it seems to have very much weighed on people's minds. Um, so to be sort of relieved of that mm. burden um, seems to have been a big thing. What, one, uh, just a couple more things, I guess, mm. before we go on with Churchill. Um, one thing that was interesting about the Cathar heresy is that it was very appealing to women because I can imagine that there were many women in the Middle Ages who did have husbands against their will and so to be able to take a vow of chastity and effectively sequester, because a lot of them, what they would do is they would have their children quite young, obviously, uh, raise their children, and then by their late 30s and early 40s uh, would take a vow of chastity. And so now, and it would be husbands, uh, you know, a guy's wife would take a vow of chastity. And it's like, okay, what do you do now? You know, <laughs> okay, well, great. And then she'd go off and... Uh, join not a convent but like a, a group of Cathars uh, and that that would be it and so that seemed to be something that was very appealing to quite quite a number of women actually mm. uh, they definitely had a lot more women taking those vows and becoming perfect ones than men um, just an mm. just a note Churchill goes on um, the thrilling sensation of being raised above the vicissitudes of this world and at the same time freed from the menaces of the next produced a great happiness in which all classes joined and from it sprang culture and manners and fervour of conviction. Um, he says, uh, this casting off of all spiritual bonds was naturally unwelcome to the papacy the whole moral scheme of the Western world was based, albeit precariously, upon original sin, redemption by grace, and a hell of infinite torment and duration, which could only be avoided through the ministrations of the clergy. So their power base, really, the, the Albigenses, the Cathars, are striking directly at the, the, the power of Rome, mm. directly at it. Yeah. Um, it, it so. <clears throat> Consciously as well, mm. like they they mm. are well aware, and you can see it in the debates because they have a series of debates. The the Catholics send priests. Um, Arnold of Maori is the cardinal who oversees it. Excuse me, and they send priests to have debates with the Cathars, and the Cathars treat them in the same way the social justice warriors treat you. Uh, they are screaming that they are um, hypocrites, infidels, liars, cheats deceivers and they it, it, the the catholics are shocked that they can't have a reasonable discussion the the perfect ones are and it's it's the only time you hear that they act in any sort of aggressive way because of course they've taken a vow of non-violence and things like this and so the spitting of blood basically at the catholic faith they they 
nurtured some sort of deep grievance um, against them. It wasn't just like, you know, two intellectual clergymen having a discussion. Mm. It was like watching the SJWs on a university campus screaming mm. at people. Mm. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.